0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: When you look at the studies that have been done on animals, it's pretty appalling. Liver damage, kidney damage. When they fed it to hamsters, the third generation of hamsters weren't able to produce babies. These are real safety issues. But the real big issue in our country is that genetically modified foods are not labeled. People do not know that they are eating genetically modified food, end quote. Those were the words of health expert and activist Max Goldberg in an interview with Fox News back in 2013. In this discussion, he describes silent killers that surround us on a daily basis, living in our homes and growing in our foods. At least that's what activists say. As loud as health
0: experts claim our foods are filled with genetic poisons, scientists claim our food market is stronger, healthier, and more environmentally conscious than it has ever been before. But they can't both be right. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events
1: and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parkast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg.
0: And neither of us are conspiracy theorists.
1: But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today we're talking about genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. These are foods that have been modified genetically or are grown in labs for specific and often controversial purposes. Scientists claim that foods produced this way are virtually identical to natural foods.
0: But activists claim that GMOs cause health issues, harm the environment, and spread disease. It's easy to find credible sources presenting opposite facts when it comes to GMOs.
1: And that's why we're here. During this podcast, we will present the official version, the truth as we know it today, and how both sides see it. Are GMOs a Machiavellian cash grab by major corporations? A high-tech science that could solve world hunger? Or something much worse? Before we can answer that question, it's important to first look at why we have GMOs. What is their official purpose? And why are they important?
0: When it comes to hybrids, the advantages are about as endless as the possible combinations.
1: Scientists use GMOs whenever they want to improve a product on the market. This could be to speed up how fast it grows, to increase its shelf life, or even to modify its taste. But that is just the
0: beginning. According to the Associated Press, there are all kinds of ways to combine foods.
1: Del Monte has engineered a pink pineapple with lycopene, an antioxidant that may have a role in preventing cancer. A British company is hoping to sell purple tomatoes that have high levels of anthocyanins, compounds found in blueberries that could lower the risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. The Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, claim there are currently 10 GMO crops on the market. Alfalfa, apples, canola, corn, cotton, papaya, potatoes, soybeans, squash, and sugar beets.
0: 90% of GMO production is used for consumer crops. These are crops
1: that feed livestock. But the other 10% can be found in the foods we eat. And that's why GMOs are a global conversation on social media platforms, talk shows, and conferences. These genetic changes are in our grocery stores, restaurants, and homes.
0: But before we get carried away with the horrors of GMOs, Molly and I believe it is important to first understand where
1: GMOs came from. Most people think GMOs are a new science, but they're not as modern as you'd think. In fact, humans have been genetically modifying organisms for thousands of years. Selective breeding, or artificial selection, is the earliest form of GMO technology, and it all began over 20,000 years ago in East Asia. While our ancestors were still hunters and gatherers, packs of Eurasian gray wolves joined their communities as scavengers. Modern day studies placed this union of man and pup in Central Asia, around modern day Nepal and Mongolia.
0: But instead of fending off the wolves, humans adopted the more docile among them as companions. It wasn't malicious.
1: The wolves got a consistent supply of food while humans got a hunting partner. Because of their proximity, the docile wolves began to mate with each other and the next generation grew up entirely in our tribes. Although unintentional, our
0: presence immediately changed their species. Several generations later, We decided to get involved in the breeding process. Here, we started to favor dogs that were
1: better hunters, or because they were cute. Hundreds of years later, we have the wide spectrum of dog breeds that we know and love today. It's hard to imagine that Chihuahuas and Huskies share the same ancestor, but it's thanks to genetic modification that dogs are so diverse.
0: The history of food is much the same. In approximately 9500 BC, our ancestors invented farming. They quickly discovered some strains of crops grew better than others. Maybe a group of berries were sweeter than the rest. Maybe a vegetable grew better in tough soil. Either way, they replanted the seeds from those plants and crossed their
1: fingers for a better crop the next year. In doing so, they decided which traits should be carried into the next generation on a genetic level. This ultimately shaped these crops into the foods we know today. Around 7800
0: BC, farmers in Asia began to specifically select strains of wheat that were the most fruitful. This process of selection formed a hybrid that was stronger and better suited to their needs. But wheat is not the only example. Almost every plant that we eat today has evolved through our ancestors' selection process. One of the most drastic examples of this early GMO development
1: comes in corn. Maize didn't exist until genetic modification. The first corn species was actually a wild grass called Teocinti.
0: The ears of Teocinti were completely different than the massive starchy stalks we know today. Teosinti had only a few
1: kernels per cob. We're talking no more than five. GMO technology brought corn to the massive 800-kernel fruit we recognize. Just like with wheat, ancient farmers chose the best harvest of teosinti each season and replanted those seeds for the next year. This all
0: sounds great, but it's little more than natural selection. What I'm more concerned about are the conspiracies that come from nameless corporations genetically splicing ingredients and toxins into food products for wide commercial gain.
1: I agree. And for that, we're going to have to fast forward in time and change our terminology. Splicing DNA into other organisms is actually called genetic engineering, or GE. It's a semantics battle, but an important one. GMOs are naturally selected through hundreds of years. GE is the mixing of DNA in a lab. And this is the science that has people checking the backs of boxes in grocery stores. It's important to note that, officially, this genetic engineering is always done to solve a very specific problem. But not everyone is ready for food that has genes from other organisms. The first instance of GE technology happened back in the
0: 1970s with the revolutionary work of two men, Herbert Boyer and Stanley Cohen. Born in Pennsylvania, Herbert Boyer attended St. Vincent's College, where he enrolled in pre-medical studies and developed an interest in chemistry and biology. He went on to the University of Pittsburgh and then held a
1: fellowship at Yale. He was one of those eager students that couldn't get enough of school. He would spend hours in the laboratories of his youth, filling his mind with the studies of Johann Friedrich Miescher, the man behind the discovery of DNA. It's important to note that back in the 70s, the study of DNA was revolutionary, and any scientist working in this field had the potential to be a pioneer. In 1972, while Boyer was investigating the DNA of intestinal bacteria, he became one of those pioneers. Boyer noticed that the ends of DNA are not blunt, but staggered. They look like the edges of puzzle pieces. And maybe, just maybe, more DNA could be attached to those edges. During the same years, a young boy from New Jersey
0: was also falling in love with science, Stanley Cohen. Like Boyer, Cohen had a love for genetics and a drive for new frontiers in science. He attended Rutgers University, the University of Pennsylvania, and ultimately the Albert
1: Einstein College of Medicine, where he taught for many years. Cohen loved teaching, but he also found time for his own research on DNA. Our story
0: really begins in Hawaii, at a U.S. Japanese conference on plasmids. It was here that these two geniuses met and ultimately shaped the face of modern
1: genetic science. Boyer and Cohen were both presenting at the conference when their research caught each other's attention. They agreed to meet and, over late-night sandwiches, began to talk. The most daring question of their conversation
0: was this. Is it possible to change the DNA of an organism on a genetic level? to change it so completely that it carries that DNA
1: down to the next generation. It was a question that needed an answer. And that same year, Cohen and Boyer began to work together, sharing notes and flying bacterium back and forth across the country. Focusing on E. coli, their goal was to genetically modify a strain of bacterium to make it resistant to an antibiotic, tetracycline. Bacteria are known for acquiring antibodies, but this plasmid, PSC-101, had no business being in this particular bacterium, which is why E. coli was not naturally resistant to tetracycline.
0: It was a little bit like building a ladder. Cohen and Boyer broke off the end of the ladder and attached more rungs to make the ladder longer. The result was an extra-long ladder with new DNA. It took months of trials, but in 1973, E. coli, made to acquire PSC-101, was able to resist the antibiotic tetracycline. This was huge.
1: An organism had accepted new DNA. But the study wasn't over yet. Could they put a second antibiotic into this bacterium? Could DNA from two foreign antibiotics be shared? The result was another success. They mixed two different species of plasmids and proved that genetic material could be shared between species.
0: This is starting to
1: sound like science fiction. Mutant bacteria mixing species. That's exactly what the public thought. News traveled fast about their science experiment and people were afraid Cohen and Boyer were messing with the building blocks of life. So in 1974, a voluntary moratorium was placed on genetic engineering experiments until scientists could gather to discuss the future of the science. This was called the GE Experiment Moratorium.
0: And for Cohen and Boyer, it was a slap in the face. For over a year, their work was halted. They didn't know if their work would be approved or if they would have to abandon their research altogether. So they waited. And waited.
1: In the meantime, scientists, lawyers, and government officials all gathered at the rocky shores of Asilomar State Beach to discuss this cutting-edge technology called genetic engineering. For three days, the greatest minds in science and politics debated the potential
0: benefits and threats of genetic engineering. Its moral grounds, its social grounds, even its financial grounds. Was this new science
1: ethical? who should be given permission to study it? Did it deserve funding? After hours of debate and frustration, they came to an agreement. GE projects should be allowed to continue with certain guidelines. As long as safety and containment regulations were put into place to protect the public and mitigate the danger, genetic engineering was a science worth pursuing. With that sentence, the era of genetic modification had begun. And with it, the race for new GMOs. Cohen and Boyer returned to their work and continued to make advancements for genetically modified bacteria. But this was just the beginning for GMOs. A new trio would carry the science into the next chapter. Genetically engineered food. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network.
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix.
1: And now let's continue our story. While Cohen and Boyer were shocking the world with their mutant bacterium, two Brits and a Midwesterner were learning as much as they could about plant growth. Michael W. Bevan, Richard B. Flavelle, and Mary Dell Chilton met doing postdoctoral research at Washington University in St. Louis in 1979 and developed a strong bond over their passion for the frontier of genetic modification. Cohen and Boyer were the
0: talk of the town, but this trio wondered if the same genetic engineering principles could be applied to plants. Specifically, tobacco plants. Bevan, Flavel, and Chilton wanted to modify a plot of tobacco plants to make them resistant to agrobacterium, a bacterium known for spreading diseases in plants.
1: Working internationally, Bevan, Flavel and Chilton bought tobacco fields in America and in France and began to modify the DNA of their plants. They were not cross-breeding plants, but altering the DNA, just like Cohen and Boyer had done.
0: It was a gamble. Never before had a
1: hybrid experiment been performed at this level. It could have been a waste of time and money. But it wasn't. In 1982, Bevan, Flavel, and Chilton successfully engineered a tobacco plant that was resistant to agrobacterium. And the first genetically engineered crop was born. By modern definitions, yes. Once again, to scientists, this is a little more than favoring a specific gene. They would be able to do this naturally if they spent hundreds of years crossbreeding plants with the desired traits and mutations. New genetic engineering was simply speeding up the evolutionary clock to yield a specific result.
0: But the rest of the world didn't see it this way. They saw scientists riddled with delusions of grandeur, playing God and meddling with life.
1: Many people still see GMOs this way today. Regardless, the science world exploded. Hybridization was possible. Genetic engineering was possible. What came next was an invention that is still being used today,
0: an invention that made genetic engineering as fast as pulling a trigger. In 1983, John C. Sanford invented the Gene Gun. As the name would suggest,
1: it was a gun that blasted genetic information into plant cells. It was a lot like a shotgun. Plant cells would be fixed in a vacuum and then shot with DNA until they had enough material to pass it down to the next generation.
0: But the most interesting ingredient to this transfer was the carrying substance. Sanford needed a heavy material that would act as a bullet for the genetic material. After several tests, he and his colleagues decided on gold.
1: Gold particles were covered with genetic material and shot at plant cells at high speeds. So, our success in genetic engineering can be attributed in part to plant cells being blasted like a shotgun with gold particles. Mm Mm-hmm. By a young Earth creationist. As it turns out,
0: apart from being a genetic scientist, Sanford was also a vocal young Earth creationist. This is the religious belief held by some Christians that the universe was created less than 10,000 years ago by a divine figure. Because this belief contradicts evolution, many activists and even fellow scientists criticized Sanford's authority as a genetic engineer. They believed one couldn't understand the future of genetics without understanding their past and
1: how life evolved. Regardless, genetic engineering was only growing in popularity and productivity. And it was only a few years later that the first commercial GMO was released to the public. If you're wondering where the national discussion
0: on GMOs began, where talk shows and social media posts got their cannon fodder, it was the release of this fruit that changed the public perception
1: of GMOs forever. It was here that the battle of organic versus GMO really began, and it has everything to do with a tomato. The Flavor Saver Tomato
0: When you think of horror stories of strange modified fruits being snuck into grocery stores and hidden as silent killers alongside normal fruits, The Flavor Saver Tomato is the textbook.
1: The idea behind The Flavor Saver Tomato was an innocent one. The Davis, California company, Calgene, wanted a tomato that would stay on the shelf longer. Without
0: getting too technical, there are enzymes and fruits that cause their skins to break down and rot. The dream with the flavor saver was to create a tomato that resisted those enzymes and ripened perfectly as you brought it home. They didn't have the technology to completely remove the enzymes, so reducing them was the team's best option.
1: Now in order for a product like this to make it to the market, it has to be approved by a variety of agencies, the largest being the FDA. Mentioned before, the FDA is the authority that approves all the food products in the United States. The Flavor Saver Tomato was submitted to the FDA in 1992, and it was approved for distribution and consumption in 1994. But here is where it gets weird. The average amount of time for a food or drug to be
0: approved through the FDA is 10 years. The Flavor Saver Tomato was sent out in just two. That's really fast. It gets stranger. The flavor saver tomato was Calgene's premier crop. They spent millions of dollars in development, but after three years, they immediately halted all
1: production and the tomato vanished forever. Calgene claims this was because the production cost of the tomato was too high for the company to maintain. But the tomato was attracting a profit and an interest with the public. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't, but that is the official story the only other explanation comes with the involvement of a larger biotech company called Monsanto. The same year the Flavor Saver Tomato was released to the public, Monsanto started to buy calgene one share at a time, slowly swallowing up the small Californian company. Three years later, just as Monsanto bought the final share of calgene, the Flavor Saver Tomato disappeared. Monsanto claims the failure of the flavor-saver tomato was a result of Calgene's inexperience in business.
0: But Calgene was founded in 1901 with a long history of biotechnology. It was hardly a greenhorn company. This disconnect in facts is just the start to the controversy that is Monsanto. Founded in 1901 by John Francis Queenie, The St. Louis company started as a chemical company before World War II. They were one of the companies that produced Agent Orange and its main poison, dioxin. They were also behind the distribution of aspartame sweetener, which has been linked with cancer. Being associated with cancer was bad for business, so in the 90s, Monsanto washed its hands of chemicals and plastics
1: and switched over to seed companies and biotech research. A few years later, in 1994, they released their first GMO, the Roundup Ready soybean. This was a soybean that was genetically engineered to resist the pesticide Roundup. The benefit to this GMO was
0: farmers could spray Roundup over their crops, and only the weeds would die. Roundup is a deadly poison that kills all kinds of plants. But this new
1: soybean could
0: grow right through the pesticides and produce crops.
1: This is when things turned for the worse. In 1996, England had just survived the mad cow disease epidemic and was very skeptical of new foods in their market.
0: That same year, an American crop from an ex-chemical company was trying to spread genetically modified crops into their market. It was too much to ask.
1: Although the European Union approved of GMOs in 1996, the public did not share their trust. European tabloids and chain
0: grocery stores printed stories about these American GMOs, or Frankenfoods as they called them. They presented them as monstrous American products, defaced in laboratories and filled with viruses. Even Prince Charles wrote an article declaring that genetic engineering, quote, takes mankind
1: into realms that belong to God and to God alone, end quote. Monsanto was stunned by this reaction. So in an attempt to stop the frankenfood message, Monsanto funded a $1.6 million ad campaign to run through Europe. The campaign was a pro-GMO message calling for open-mindedness about GMOs. But Europe
0: didn't see it that way. They saw Monsanto's ad show as tasteless American
1: propaganda. Monsanto tried to negotiate with stakeholders in Europe to neutralize the bad press, but the damage was done. By 1998,
0: the hate for Monsanto had spread back to America and around the globe.
1: Environmental groups pinned Monsanto as the face of evil corporate America. In the years that have followed, the public's relationship with Monsanto has only worsened. Becoming a catch-all for conspiracies and mistakes, Monsanto remains a prime target for the non-GMO movement today. But that was
0: the 1990s. The 21st century has seen a wild evolution in GMO technology. We are now faster, more intelligent, and more efficient at restructuring our world. It would be impossible to talk about 21st century GMOs without mentioning the controversial work of
1: Gilles-Éric Serralini. Still alive today, Serralini is a French molecular biologist, political advisor, and face of the current non-GMO movement. Born in Algeria in 1960, he grew up during the
0: Algerian War of Independence. It was a brutal conflict. Guerrilla warfare
1: and torture were common on both sides. Despite this difficult background, Seralini obtained a doctoral degree from the University of Montpellier too, and spent his early life digging into the growing technology of GMOs. But, it wasn't until 2012 that he ran a test that shocked the world. Ceralini was concerned that major corporations
0: like Monsanto were not considering the dangers of this new science and feared
1: that GMOs contained hidden toxins. So he built a very simple test with rats. One group of rats he fed GM corn seed, while the other was fed non-GM corn seed. The results were staggering.
0: In the GM food group, 50% of the males and 70% of the females died prematurely of cancer, whereas only 30% of males and
1: 20% of females died in the non-GM food group. The public reacted violently. Facebook groups, talk shows, protests. This study, nicknamed the Seralini Affair, even informed the banning of GM foods in Kenya, a ban that still stands today. GMOs were the silent killer inside food, invisible and carcinogenic, and what was worse, they were everywhere, inside our cereals, inside our fruits. They were impossible to avoid. The only way to be sure was to buy organic. GMO-free labels were made and everyone became more aware. But that was 2012. This science is so
0: cutting-edge that even the last couple years have totally changed how we see GMOs. In 2012, you would be hard-pressed to find a scientist that was in favor of GMOs. But in 2013, scientists decided to take a second
1: look at Saralini's study. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue the story. Linking GMOs to cancer and rats, Dr. Gilles-Eric Seralini's study shaped the world's perception of GMOs. But in 2013, scientists saw there were some errors in his study.
0: The first red flag came with Seralini himself. He was publishing a book, Culinary Pleasures or Hidden Poisons, A Conversation Between a Chef and a Scientist, the same year he presented his study to the world. This book was all about the dangers of GMOs and, as you can imagine, his discovery
1: did wonders for his book sales. The second red flag came with Seralini's research. The rats that Saralini used in his study had an 80% chance of developing cancer naturally, regardless of what they ate. This is almost double the genetic average of normal lab rats. Furthermore, some of the rats
0: that Seralini fed GM seed actually outlive the non-GMO rat group.
1: If the GM corn was poisonous, it definitely shouldn't have helped them live longer. Still a third red flag emerged. The sample size of Seralini's rats was very small. This distorted the evidence. And the fourth red flag, there was no photographic evidence of the non-GMO group. Meaning, they could have been developing cancer in the same way, but Seralini chose not to share this detail.
0: Seralini responded with another test in
1: 2014, this time with 200 rats. The rats were divided into 10 experimental groups, with different amounts of GM maize in their food. Seralini carefully documented how each of the rats were affected and how the percentages affected the rats. In the end, regardless of the percentage, Seralini found that the GMO-fed rats were two to three times more likely to die than non-GMO-fed rats. In other words, if rats ate any percentage of GM crops, they were doomed to die. That's right. You'd think the varying percentage of GMO food would have an effect on the rats.
0: There were more red flags with this study,
1: too. First, Seralini
0: required journalists to sign a confidentiality agreement before they could receive a copy of his study. This agreement prevented them from contacting any other researchers before his official press conference on the new test. Second, at the press conference Ceralini announced that he was going to be releasing a documentary on his discovery. His study once again was very helpful in giving his film traction in the science community. He seemed credible because he was a published
1: scientist with a strong education behind him. That said, since Seralini's study, no other team of scientists across the globe have been able to replicate his findings. In fact, the Japanese Department of Environmental Health and Toxicology have found the exact opposite results. They tested rats with GMO soybeans over a 52-week period and discovered, quote, no apparent adverse effect in rats, end quote. The University of Nottingham School of Bioscience released a similar test. They reviewed
0: five generations of rats with GM foods and found, quote, no evidence of health hazards. Around the world, over 900 studies have been conducted around GMOs and, apart from Seralini, GMOs are considered safe. In 2015, Congressman Mike Pompeo reported the same sentiment. Biotechnology's time and time again have proven safe. It is simply not debatable. U.S. policy should reflect that. We should not raise prices on consumers based on the wishes of a handful of activists. But it's hard to say, especially when it's scientist versus scientist. Are modern scientists trying to cover up Seralini's research? Or is Seralini distorting evidence for
1: financial and academic gain? Despite the controversy, GMOs are only growing more common today and solving many of the world's problems. One of the most successful GMO stories in the last few years comes from a pair of German biologists named Ingo Patricus and Peter Beyer. Starting in 2005, they saw the malnutrition of third world countries and
0: decided to develop a strain of rice that contained additional vitamin A to help children, called golden rice. It took five years, but the first strain of golden rice
1: was released in 2010. However, it's been one long, uphill battle for public acceptance. Seralini's research turned much of the public away from GMO development, and Patricus and Bayer felt this resistance firsthand. Through press conferences, papers, and meetings, they slowly brought some people around to accepting their invention. However, the first strain
0: of golden rice was only on the market for months before it was quickly removed. Activists had investigated the crop and discovered that it didn't offer as much vitamin A as scientists originally thought. This was solved by the development of new strains of rice. But we can't help but wonder why scientists chose to hide the vitamin A levels in the original strain. It doesn't bode well for the strength of the pro-GMO movement.
1: Also not boding well, a farm of golden rice was uprooted by protesters in the Philippines in 2013. Allegedly, the destruction was a result of the extreme leftist farmers' movement of the Philippines. But that's just the thing.
0: It was allegedly caused by the farmers' movement. The only proof comes from the British author and journalist Mark Linus, a known supporter of GMOs. Activists claim Linus falsified the evidence to discredit the non-GMO movement.
1: Whatever the truth was, golden rice now contains three times more vitamin A than normal rice and has already assisted in the battle against malnutrition.
0: But the public doesn't seem to fully agree with the research. Protests against golden rice continue today.
1: We mentioned that GMO technology is still growing today. A new form of GMO technology is on the horizon. By scientific
0: definitions, this technology is unlike anything else we have seen before in GMO development, or even on this planet. The man behind this mysterious
1: new development is Craig Venter. Born in Salt Lake City, Venter was one of the least likely students of science to become a cutting-edge geneticist. He was unmotivated in school and preferred to spend his time surfing and boating. This, no doubt, was a result of his family moving from Utah to California in his middle school
0: years. Just scraping through high school with C's and B's, Venter was drafted for the Vietnam War. He was enlisted by the Navy, and he worked in the intensive care ward of a field hospital. The horrors of war led Venter to an
1: attempted suicide, but he returned home and returned to school. The war ignited a passion for healing in Venter, and after earning a PhD from the University of California, San Diego, Venter founded a company that still exists today, a company that directly affects GMOs and how GMOs will grow in the future. That company is called synthetic genomics. To many scientists, what they are doing inside the walls of this California company is the future of GMO technology and the solution to dozens of problems around the world. Venter and his colleagues have been the first team in history to develop a synthetic life form. They have named it Cynthia.
0: By its definition, a synthetic life form is a custom built life form, an artificial life. But this is not an android. This is a genetically artificial life form. It's important to note that Venter and his team are dealing with bacteria at this point. It's the smallest level of life imaginable, just like Cohen and Boyer all those years ago. We are nowhere near building an alien in a lab, but this construction does mark a huge
1: development in GMO technology. The benefits for the science are endless. If DNA can be built for a specific purpose, Organisms can be made to make medicines, produce fuels, even combat global warming.
0: At least those are the benefits. With any new technology, the ability to weaponize also presents itself. And there is good reason to keep an eye on the J. Craig Venter
1: Institute as they step into the future of synthetic life. To us, the idea of artificial life sounds more like science fiction than genetics but it is the future of GMOs. At least one of the futures. We want to leave you with one last innovation in GMO technology that is happening today, even as you're listening to this podcast. It's a growing technology that shakes the foundation of many moral institutions and shatters comfort zones.
0: We are talking about human hybridizations.
1: Called chimeric research, this last vision of GMOs started from the University of California, Davis, back in 2016. They wanted to see if human and pig cells could be mixed. The goal was to create more organs on the market for organ donors. They spliced DNA to convert pig organs into human ones. The
0: results of the research have yet to be revealed to the public. But in 2018,
1: Stanford University began a similar experiment with sheep cells. We'll hear the results of both these experiments as early as 2019. For the listeners' comfort,
0: this is just an initial study. Once again, scientists are nowhere near growing a living, breathing chimera in a lab, but artificial life and chimeric
1: research are the frontiers scientists are currently pursuing. As you can imagine, with such a wild history and even wilder future, countless conspiracy theories surround this new technology. To go through each of them in detail would take hours, but we have selected three to investigate next week. Conspiracy theory number one. Massive biotech companies like Monsanto are putting dangerous and even mind-altering products on the market for unsuspecting consumers to digest. Conspiracy theory number two, modern scientists are distorting facts and
0: studies to silence the discoveries of Saralini and other non-GMO activists.
1: Conspiracy theory number three, the organisms scientists are modifying are causing major environmental damage and spreading viruses around the planet
0: this last theory is the most controversial, with superbugs
1: like the Africanized bee and the Zika virus currently alive and well today. As with this episode, we will present both sides of the argument, but next week we will dive a little deeper to see how fast facts can become fiction.
0: For as strange as the history of GMOs has been, the theories that fill the gaps are even stranger. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but
1: it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more Conspiracy Theories. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't
0: always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Muller. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Michael Herman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.